The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. I've been listening to um, this podcast. Well, it's really more of a show, and then they put it. They also put it on Spotify mm-hmm. um, by Trixie and Katya, the drag queens. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I've been listening to their show, and at the beginning of their show, they always introduce themselves, but they'll be like, they're never like, it's never like, oh, hi, I'm Trixie Mattel, and this is our show. It's like, hi, I'm the Rodney Dangerfield of drag, Trixie Mattel. And they do something like that every time. And it's just funny because sometimes they leave in the bits where they screw up, like, or just like, they just start laughing at the beginning. And so it reminds me of when they're trying to do these cold opens, and both of us are just like, what do we do? So are you ready for the final episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier? No. <laughs> you have more days to prepare. Um, normally, my roommate watches them with me, but she's been, like, opening on Fridays. And I saw, and when we watched, we watched WandaVision together, I would see spoilers, like, every week while I was, like, waiting for her to be, like, off work and have the time to watch it with me. And so for Falcon, I was like... I can't, Gabby, I can't do this again. <laughs> I can't see spoilers ever again. So I'm watching all the episodes by myself. So the episode with the, the you know, the violent content warning, mm-hmm. I sat down like, oh, well, there's going to be a cool fight scene in this one. Let's get ready to go. And then everything happened to me as I was alone in my apartment. <laughs> then I was just there like, oh. Yeah, that was brutal. Experiencing, you know, some more of the collective American trauma that is yeah. just <laughs> existing in America. Yeah, I think they've done some really great stuff in this that's, you know, added a lot of layers and complexity and philosophical questions about heroes of any kind. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. The first episode, I was like, this is a little all right. I don't need this, like, yeehaw with the military jeeps (laughs) but now we get to this we're waiting for the finale and after seeing john walker like have a complete breakdown it's like Mm -hmm. all right um we send good boy america blonde haired blue eyed you know to fix you know the foreign threat and then it turns out that he's the threat all along to everyone everywhere (laughs) or or becomes the threat because he's so broken by his experiences, you know. That yeah. On that happy note, should we start the show? <laughs> Hi, I'm the American threat from home, Ella Pearson. <laughs> okay, welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer and editor Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella. Hello. We are Two Generations of Geek. This is episode 62, featuring our very special guest, Dr. Aaron McDonald, astrophysicist, teacher, writer, science consultant for the Star Trek universe, and all-around power geek. So, let's get to the show. Aaron McDonald, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad we made this work. Yes, we're looking forward to hearing very super geeky stuff from you. Um, <laughs> that I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive straight in. I want to get go right back to the beginning 
not all the way to the beginning of the universe, but just your beginning. What came first for you, science or science fiction? Ooh, good question. I think for me, it was science first because okay. I was raised in a household that my parents were not into science fiction. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to it, but I did get to watch PBS in the afternoon. So I had Bill Nye, the science guy to keep me company. <laughs> and, and I liked science from that aspect. Um, and then when I was a little bit older, the X-Files was airing and I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I was really into <laughs> aliens by that point mm -hmm. because like more from the science side of things, but like my uncle was really into aliens and he was a big sci-fi fan. So it was like, I had kind of absorbed some stuff over time, but I didn't have like a sci-fi franchise that I was really into. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was just obsessed with the idea of the X-Files. So I would, I would record it on VHS in secret and then watch it. <laughs> <laughs> When and no so <laughs> when you when when the science bug first bit you what age was that was that elementary school then or oh yeah probably really early I mean you know I like to say that everyone's kind of born a scientist at the very least we all love our kid selves are obsessed with space and dinosaurs like either one the other or both <laughs> and, and it usually takes the rest of society to kind of beat that out of you a little bit <laughs> and you know, except you know for some people who can continue on through that but uh deep down inside all of us we all are little scientists who love space and dinosaurs so I, you know it's hard for me to pinpoint like at what age exactly i got into it because i just mm -hmm. you know i was grateful like my parents would take me to the science museum and it was just kind of cool. I didn't even necessarily know that that was science that I was into, but I just really liked all that content. Yeah. Both Ella and myself, very similar trajectories being, you know, dinosaur geeks, space geeks. Well, of course, Ella was influenced a lot by myself, but <laughs> yeah. when I was a kid, my parents weren't particularly into any of that stuff. And so I kind of found my way in there. So you kind of touched on, I, I had this this uh, cheesy joke I was going to work into my next question, but we've kind of gone oh. past it. But I was going <laughs> to ask you, I was going to ask you at what age you gravitated from one to the <laughs> other. Uh. <laughs> That's solid. I'm glad you still said it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it definitely was probably around, I would say probably, oh gosh, maybe 10, because it was the X-Files, but it was also Jurassic Park. I was really into that. Again, the dinosaur thing. Um, and so between the two of those, that just made me like full jump into science fiction and science and how they can come together. I just loved, I loved all of that. Just deep, deeply obsessed. <laughs> Did you have sort of like a favorite science field when you were that young? Or like you mentioned Bill Nye, like a favorite scientist or like show something that you really like, did you really focus on space from the start? Like, not really. I, um, mostly driven by Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> I, I really wanted to be like a paleontologist or like a biologist or something along those lines. And I still liked space, but I didn't even really realize that you could do it as a career. I think until I saw contact, I was obviously, when I go through my bio, I realized how much I was like 
influenced by movies, but <laughs> it's true. It's true. It makes a huge difference. Um, but Contact came out, and that was, you know, Dr. Ellie Arroway in that, and seeing her work at a telescope. Like, that was kind of that first nugget that made me realize that you could study space as a career. And um, But I still kind of stuck with biology and paleontology for a bit. And then it really wasn't until, like, late high school, early college, when I started like I did want to study space, but I had still kept these ideas open. So I was taking those other classes just in case one sparked and the other one didn't. Um, and I just didn't have great experiences in biology or in, in uh, paleontology. So I was like, well, look, space is my thing. <laughs> <laughs> when you started getting into science fiction, you mentioned Jurassic Park and stuff. Uh, did you start reading science fiction as well? Um, a little bit. I mean, I read Michael Crichton, actually, you know, like, because, uh, because I just wanted more Jurassic Park in my life. But I picked up a little bit, but they were mostly the books that were based on those movies. I, in terms of novels and things I read, it was more classic literature. I was also into, like, Pride and Prejudice and those mm-hmm. sort of, Jane Eyre was, was my favorite book through high school. It still is my favorite book. But, um, yeah, it wasn't really... You know, I didn't and I I would say, too, I probably didn't get into science fiction novels until I was in college and just from friends recommending these. But, you know, they weren't assigned reading in school. And I just didn't have that reference point of like when you don't when you're not raised in a sci fi household, like you don't know where to start when it comes to sci fi books. So I would just read Star Wars books, Michael Crichton books, like things Mm -hmm. that I had seen in the movies. I would just read the novel versions of them. And I still kind of do that. If it makes you feel better, you can see a a fraction of what I grew up with in the background, and I have not read it. It's equally as overwhelming to have the options in front of you. <laughs> I guarantee it. You still don't know where to start. That's fair. That doesn't. Yes. Think. No, I do not. Our, yeah, for for the for the sake of our audio audience, <laughs> behind me is about. Uh, an eighth of my Star Trek collection that's visible here, it's but impressive. I think yeah. <laughs> I think I'm seeing a uh, Star Trek map on uh, your wall there, aren't I? Yes, you are. I have a Star <laughs> From the Trek cartography. map. <laughs> I'm a stellar cartography map, <laughs> and then behind me, I've got all of my combination of I've got the TNG manual, I've got technology, as well as my dissertation and and science books like actual science books and uh, and then a bunch of star trek books so yes, we live the brand <laughs> speaking of star trek uh when did you first get into that what was your first series what how did that happen yeah i came in a little bit later than i'd say well, it's never too late to get into Star Trek, but I guess probably yeah. later than most people assume, given my extensive knowledge and collection. <laughs> um, I didn't get into it until college, and it at all, like, knew nothing of it. I had a friend growing up whose parents were really into Star Trek, so the most I knew was, like, there was a signed photo of Leonard Nimoy in their house and a bunch of other pretty, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know, it's real. Pretty, pretty hardcore Star Trek fans. But like, yeah. I, I never watched it with them or anything. I just knew there was this thing. And then when I was uh, in college, I always like to joke that in the Venn diagram of physicists and Star Trek fans, like there's a real big intersection. <laughs> so I... Um, you know, through my friends getting my physics degree, like we would have our college parties and we would literally 
watch Star Trek in the background, mm-hmm. like have TNG on in the background. And mm-hmm. then as the night started to mellow out, it would turn mellow out in air quotes. It would turn into <laughs> Star Trek drinking <laughs> games. And, <laughs> and but I saw like some great episodes that way. You know, I remember vividly, surprisingly vividly, seeing um Measure of a Man for like that was one of the ones that we watched. Dharma. <laughs> oh like we watched really good TNG episodes that just from hanging because they had the DVDs, you know, so people were picking episodes and yep. and um and through that I was like, oh man like that I get this like there's something here and then this was when kind of Netflix was starting like it was still mail order mm-hmm. Netflix and so I would get the DVDs and I kind of started watching those but of course like curated heavily by my friends who were like all right mm-hmm. we'll start with season four and then get this disc in season two and then like get this disc in season three and like <laughs> these are the ones that you need to watch and so I liked that And then I started watching, again, with these friends, the original series got super into that. Again, I recognized it, but then also hardcore fell for Spock. So just watched a lot of it based on that. (laughs) We can't blame you. No regrets. (laughs) Um, And uh, and then the fun thing, the really fun thing, and really where I dove head first into the Star Trek fandom was because the Kelvin film, the reboot in 2009, literally came out the night we graduated and so we had our graduation we went did our thing with our families and then got dressed up in costumes and went to the big IMAX like for the midnight showing and I'd been to midnight showings right this is still in peak like you know we've had all the Harry Potters and all the Lord of the Rings and all those midnight showings but this was like you, you know, you got that sense that it wasn't all just a bunch of high school kids. Like this was a no joke fandom and I yeah. loved it. And I didn't get half of the references, but all I knew leaving that theater, I was like, this is my family. This is my new family. I want to be a part of this. And then when I moved, I literally moved to do my PhD, like three weeks after that, I moved overseas by myself. And so I just started watching all of it and Voyager really resonated with me. Deep Space Nine became obsessed with. And so, yeah, I was just kind of head first tumble after that. (laughs) The way I sometimes will get um, friends of mine who don't watch nerdy stuff to watch nerdy stuff is I'll be like, it'll be, we can play a drinking game. And then I like put on JJ Trek. (laughs) It's like a trick. It's so effective. <laughs> I'm like, it'll be great. And then they're always like, that movie was so much fun. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. <laughs> <sighs> you got to sneak them in the door and then just shut it really fast. Do, <laughs> and they get it. <laughs> so do you, are you able to pick like a favorite Star Trek series or are they all just... I mean, they're all really close to my heart. I really yeah. do like all of them, but I but picking a favorite for sure is Deep Space Nine. Like I'm rewatching it right now with a friend who's never seen it before, and it's just so good. It consistently blows my mind how good Deep Space Nine is. And I think for me, I really like the variety of the characters. You know, the fact that they're on a station, the fact that it's a lot darker. That we got those like serialized arcs. You know. I just love Deep Space Nine. Um, but my favorite captain is Captain Janeway. So I live this dichotomy life and it's fine. 
<laughs> um, I stand by my decisions, but yeah, it's uh, Deep Space Nine is definitely my favorite. You know, it was still back in the the days of TV when you were doing twenty some episodes a season, so you yeah. could you had the, the 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 time to do the character episodes and the and the serialized stuff. I think that's what makes that stand out so much is that you really you don't yeah the the breathing room to have goofy episodes but then still have some character development and to have character interactions that you don't get otherwise um really lends itself well to that story well i guess this might be tricky for you to answer but then we have this division because we have like (laughs) the legacy trek and then we have all this new trek yeah. Which, of course, you know, you have a professional relationship with that we'll get into more <laughs> later. But before you got that professional relationship uh, with the new Trek, uh, you know, what was your reaction when you first started hearing that there was going to be new stuff finally? Oh, I love it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm one of these fans that just throw me in that world, throw whatever you want mm-hmm. at me, like whatever sticks to the wall is great. Like if I can just pretend that I live in Starfleet for <laughs> another 45 minutes, I'm fine with that. Um, so I'm certainly like hearing that it was being made, hearing that it was coming out. I'm, I'm golden. That's, that's no problem for me. And I love variety too, because I think for me, the when you have these long-standing franchises with such a huge fan base, it almost does become more is better because we're all so different and we all have different stories and different backgrounds. And that, you know, for some people, Deep Space Nine might not resonate with them with all. Or for me, mm-hmm. like TNG, I like and I have nostalgic aspects to it, but I don't resonate with it in the same way I mm-hmm. do these other series. And so if we can have more shows, particularly like with Discovery, the representation in Discovery is so good yeah. that it opens it up to so many more people to see themselves in the Star Trek universe. Like, I'm just 110% into that. Love it. <laughs> Even if there's a show that doesn't particularly grab me, you know, you go on social media and you see all the people it is grabbing. Yeah. Exactly. Not every show has to be for me. We got a lot to choose from, and it's bringing in new people and young people. And of course, I'm I'm old enough now that so many people seem like young people to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so happy to see people 10, 20, 30 years younger than I am just loving Star Trek. Yeah. You have your first uh, your first captain, your first show, or you know, to put it in British terms, your first doctor. Yeah, exactly and, exactly. and then you get exposed to a franchise and you get drawn in and then usually people start broadening and looking what has come before. It's so great to see this new explosion of stuff. Yeah, it really is. It was really funny. The um, Star Trek Prodigy is the new Nickelodeon show for kids. Uh, it's animated and I loved when they released the picture of the crew and mm-hmm. it's all aliens and it's all kind of goofy looking and and some people were complaining about it because it didn't look like Star Trek. And then I, the response from the showrunners, the Hageman brothers, <laughs> they posted a picture where it was like the, the baby face swap of the TOS crew and they were like, what were you guys expecting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... I loved that picture. Yeah. 
you know, of just like a bunch of goofy teenagers across a whole variety of species that we haven't even seen yet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're doing animation, why not take advantage right. of being able to do, you know, all sorts of crazy aliens, um, whether they're, you know, sentient aliens or, or various creatures and stuff. Like, you know, we've seen a lot of fun, goofy creatures on lower decks <laughs> that, I, <laughs> yeah. that I've been loving. I was going to say, it always amazes me when people make comments like, oh, that doesn't look like Star It's like, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think Star Trek looks? It's a show in space. About like about alien? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What exactly were you expecting there? Like they're expecting, you know, seven to ten white men and then yeah. one lady. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's just it's so crazy. But this is again where I think that like the more content that comes out, it just dampens all of that because you're just going to get more fans and it's just going to, you know, that will eventually sort of dampen out the negativity. I hope. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right. I have to ask how many Star Trek tattoos do you have? <laughs> oh, don't. Oh, I don't actually know the answer off the top of my head. <laughs> um, one, because that two. looks like Vulcan script there, is it? It is. It's it's live long and prosper in Vulcan oh, script down my nice. arm. Yeah. And then, I mean, I don't know if this counts as like one or three, but I have all these symbols from franchises that I love. And I've got the Vulcan Idic symbol, the House of Martok symbol, and the Delta badge from Voyager and Deep Space Nine. And then I've got original series. So one, two, three, four original series. I think that's it. I think I just have four. I'm sure I'm missing one. There was well, you've got you've got Voyager. I saw that on. I do. Yeah, on your wow. other arm from the Vulcan script. <laughs> yep, I've got Voyager, uh, which I love, love, love my my little ship. And then yeah, and of course now that I'm working on some of these shows, like some of the showrunners are like, you know, you you got to keep room because yeah, you're going to need that our ship there. You need that whole prodigy uh, cast photo somewhere. <laughs> Oh, that I'm definitely getting a prodigy tattoo. I love that show so much, so much. But I'm sure whatever I get will be like spoilery, so I have to wait yeah. <laughs> still until it's out. But oh my god, I love that show. <laughs> the funny thing was when it was first announced, like six months ago, or or more, and it was announced, you know, that it was going to be on Nickelodeon. My my cable package doesn't include Nickelodeon. Oh, no. <laughs> and so it's like the moment it was announced, I DM'd John Van Sitters and said, <laughs> ah, I'm not going to wait. And, and, and he just said, you know, well, calm down. It's not going to be out for like nine months or a year yet. You know, by then, you know, with, with CBS All Access growing, who knows? It'll probably, you know, be on there on some new service. I don't know how well you know John Van Sitters, but that is a dead-on imitation of him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly how he talks. <laughs> I, uh, well, that is funny because I've never actually, we've never met. Okay. <laughs> I've only interacted with him electronically so i've never actually heard him speak well that's not true i've seen him um speak on you know videos online or whatever right. he's been at conventions or stuff so <laughs> i wasn't trying to do an impression i really you got was the just, cadence right down yeah i was really just like replaying his text to me and just uh yeah 
So he told me to relax. And then sure enough, flash forward to now, <laughs> Paramount plus it's going to be fine. I'll get to see Prodigy as soon as it's as soon yep. as it starts. <laughs> well, it's funny because speaking of John Van Sitters and being on Twitter and stuff. Uh, so they told me I had started working for the franchise I think like the end, like the whole franchise around the end of 2019, I think. And then sort of at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, you know, they're starting like work on all these shows and some had been going, they were all at various stages. And I had just got this Voyager tattoo and I had seen John and like, he, he had known that I had it. And then I had an appointment to go to Nickelodeon to meet with the prodigy team and I walked in the door and the Hageman brothers are there. <laughs> They're like, so we hear you have a Voyager tattoo. And I'm like, I'm like yeah. They're like, you're going to want to sit down. <laughs> and then they told, once we were behind closed doors and they told me that uh, Janeway was going to be in the show. And oh, that's good. I kept it mostly cool, as cool as I could be. I mean, they knew I was going to lose my mind. But I got to say, man, I got into my car and it just all hit me. And then uh, when it was announced, I think John Van Sitters posted on Twitter, like, now we know for sure Aaron can keep a secret. (laughs) Because my obsession with Janeway is known throughout the franchise. (laughs) That's so funny because I found out like I do um like uh Star Trek like a recap podcast like right after when the shows are airing and um it's become kind of a joke that like my co-host will like tell me Star Trek news like I don't hear it beforehand <laughs> somehow and I found out like live on the show and oh. I just like went and done I think you were on for that episode and I just went silent <laughs> for like 30 <laughs> seconds <laughs> and then had to be like, um, I didn't know that. Uh. <laughs> oh, it's such, it's so great. It's just so good. And yeah, I just love her so much. I love her Me so too. much. It's going to be so, seeing her, I saw her speak for the first time just like probably like two years ago. And I was like, just, I mean, I knew that obviously I was like, oh, I'm going to love her clearly. But like just being there and like listening to her, I was like, oh, yeah. my, you're like, it's just the best. I know. She just has that presence. It's like, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just in awe of her. And I've done these conventions for ages. I've, I've mixed around with a Star Trek crew for so long. And I'm still just like terrified of her just because it's like she's just so so much she's so like not in a bad way it's just it's Janeway and it's like I can't she's convey like the matriarch yeah it really yeah. is like I'm sorry just let me bow and get out of your way and I'll just do what you need you need I'll get you things like I'm not worthy <laughs> Like, I want you to be my grandma, but I'm also a little terrified. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. (laughs) I want to hang out and drink, like, white wine with you and chat. But also, (laughs) I'm terrified to even bring that up. (laughs) I love it. We could talk about Star Trek forever. And I think we will talk about Star Trek a little bit more. But we're curious um, when you sort of, and we touched on this a bit earlier, but like, when did you first think you wanted to be a scientist when you were a kid? Like, did you know that that was your path? Yeah, I, um, it was, it was a little bit tricky. It wasn't a straightforward thing because I 
loved film. I loved Hollywood movie making. You know, this was a time where you'd get the double VHS that had the making of videos. And I burned through the Jurassic Park one, I think, twice over. <laughs> like, I watched it so much. And I, so I always, like, wanted to work in film. But, um, but I was also interested in science. Legitimately, I was in Science Olympiad. And I, I did really enjoy that as well. And so when it came to going to college, choosing a degree... I went to the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, um, but my dad was very much of the attitude. If, you know, they were helping me a little bit with college. He was like, if we're helping you, you're getting a science degree. <laughs> like, if you're choosing between <laughs> science and film, you're going to get a science degree and you can do film later. And he was right. I mean, it's annoying that he was right, but he was absolutely right. And so that kind of made it a non-option for me. And I never actually went into it with a plan like to become a professor or a research scientist. It was more of like, I enjoyed, I genuinely enjoyed it and I enjoyed studying it. And the idea that I could go to college and study space for four years was awesome. And then carrying on, I mean, I went on and did a PhD right afterwards and thoroughly enjoyed all of that. But the entire time I was never, <laughs> to my own detriment, was never thinking like, what am I going to do after this? <laughs> so um, I knew science consultants were a thing. I didn't know how to get into that. Um, but I really liked teaching. So I tried to find as many opportunities to teach as I could and as many opportunities to integrate science fiction in that teaching environment as well. So I'd started going to sci-fi conventions and I always felt of like, okay, well, <laughs> adult Aaron is stuck in this life now. <laughs> like, it's like I've got, this is what being an adult is, is that I got my degree and then this is the job you get after that. And then that's the job you get after that. And you just manage your hobbies. And thankfully my tenacity took over and I kind of shoehorned myself into that science consultant role. But um, yeah, even when I was finishing my PhD, I knew I didn't want to be a professor and was just trying to find out what my options were and just look like that. Cause it's not like I didn't have a plan, but I would say I had a five-year plan and that was about it. I didn't really have a beyond five-year plan and it's fine. It worked out. <laughs> it worked well, out great. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming that sometime during your undergrad, you started thinking more about the physics as you know, because since that's then what you pursued uh, for your PhD, uh, was there something particularly that started grabbing you about uh, studying astrophysics? Yeah. Um, doing research. That was, that was really the big thing because I was about, I'd say I was about a solid B student. Like I did really enjoy math. I actually loved math. And especially when I was in college and getting into the senior math courses, mm -hmm. like that's when it kind of opened up. I, I compare it to speaking a language. Like that was the first time where I felt like I spoke mathematics and I was good at it and I loved it, but I wasn't like superb at it. And it was the same with physics. I was kind of a solid B student, but then being at CU Boulder, they had so many research opportunities for undergraduates because there's so many national labs there. Um, I got a job working for an astronomy professor, and that is where I just loved it. I mean, that, and I did feel like I can continue on and go and do this for however long I can milk it. Um, 
but I loved using a telescope. I loved going through data from a telescope. You know, I, it almost like a process of elimination in my freshman year, I had gone on like a biology sort of long field trip thing and ruled out biology. Field work was not my jam. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. And then being able to sit behind a computer and learn how to code and learn how to decipher data that was coming in from space. Mm -hmm. Once I, and and I was a good researcher and that's where it was like, okay, I might not be great in the classroom. I will go to my grave with my GRE score. No one will learn what I got on my GRE. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I was a great researcher and I realized like that is something I can do and thoroughly enjoyed. And so once I got that research job and felt like I actually could excel at this and be really good, that's when that took off. Can you tell us a little bit about your gravity wave research? <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned my undergraduate research. I did radio astronomy. Again, trying to be Eliera away from contacts. <laughs> I'm not original. <laughs> we have um, to have a moment of silence for the Arecibo Oh, yes. A heartbreaking thing watching those videos of it collapsing. That was that was the telescope that I got data from for my oh. first research job. So, so that yeah, was, oh my gosh, that's hard. That was hard. <laughs> um, but I so I had been doing this radio astronomy with Arecibo and the Green Bank Telescope. And I did enjoy it. And then I was looking for PhD opportunities. And because I'd been doing research for like two and a half years at that point, and I didn't necessarily want to be a professor, I knew that the American PhD system was like not going to work for me because it's usually another two or three years of like learning how to do research and visiting different labs. And I was like, nope, done that. Like, let me just skip forward. And actually, the UK PhD program was perfect for me. It's not easy. It's it's like an apprenticeship. Like you go in there as part of your application, you propose your PhD thesis and you go in there and they say, all right, here's your desk and we'll see you in three to four years. And it's almost equivalent to the last three or four years of an American physics PhD. And um, so I had reached out to a few universities and there was a radio astronomer at Glasgow University uh, Professor Graham Wohn, who I just cold emailed and explained who I was, what my research was in, that I was interested in doing a PhD in the UK. And he wrote back and said, this is great. This is perfect timing, actually, because I've pivoted from radio astronomy to gravitational waves. And we could use more people with your background in our field right now, because in Glasgow, they were very heavy and still are very heavy in the instrumental side of gravitational waves in terms of the materials, the mirror coatings, the suspensions, all the things that they use that they build for the detectors to detect gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. And there's a small pocket of the data scientists who are there. And so Graham had moved into that section and then thought that I would be a good fit with my background. And so we talked, you know, over the next few months, we kind of came up with a plan, what was feasible for me to work on. Um, he was the head of, so LIGO is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. That's the big collaboration that, that detected gravitational waves. Um, what Graham did is that he was the chair of the continuous waves group. So that was people who were looking for gravitational waves that are always hitting us, 
like from neutron stars that are shaped like footballs. So they're like rotating and constantly mm -hmm. giving off gravitational waves. And um, so he had ideas for research projects and we talked and it was a great fit. And so that's kind of how I ended up working in LIGO and living in Scotland for, uh, I did my PhD for about four years and then did a postdoc in Wales for about two years after that. So it was pretty awesome. It was a really, really good time in my life. I became a whiskey snob. <laughs> in addition that to getting was, my PhD. <laughs> that was one of the things we wanted to ask you. We wanted to ask you about your favorite whiskeys. Oh, excellent. Sit down. <laughs> it's going to go as long as the Star Trek conversation. <laughs> no, I, um, so my favorite distillery is Akintoshin. They are a lowland... Oh. Do you know the Akintosh? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I've got great memories of visiting that distillery. And it's the Akintosh and Three Wood is my favorite whiskey. If I could pick one whiskey to drink for the rest of my life, it would be the Akintosh and Three Wood. Um, but if I have to pick a region that's not distillery specific, I would do Isla whiskeys because... Even though Akintoshin isn't that smoky, if I'm just kind of going blind into something, I do really like smoky whiskeys and have consumed much Laphroaig in my life. <laughs> That's so funny. I um, I had uh, uh, Akintoshin for the first time, like, in Glasgow. I was there for, like, only a couple of days, and it was, like, some bartender was like, oh, here, like, try this. And I was like... And I tried, probably tried, I've tried plenty, but like <laughs> that one was my favorite. Like I bought it again when I, I was studying in London. And so I went back to London and then I bought a bottle to have like in my tiny dorm. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. It's so good. It's a great, like, yeah, the basic Akintoshin is like perfect for people who are trying whiskey for the first time. And it's just so drinkable. And it's just this little distillery right outside of Glasgow. And I just love them. So, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Well, there's a there's a Star Trek angle to this story, too, because while Ella was over in England, she got to go to Star Trek Destination in Birmingham. And so she's actually met John Van Sitters in person. And I haven't. <laughs> nice. And I've worked with him yeah, sort of very, for years. Very brief. Yeah. <laughs> super. He was super busy, obviously. So, yeah, it was a very quick like, oh, hi. Hello. Like this. Oh, this is weird. Like, hi. But yeah. <laughs> He's always busy. Which is, is yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's funny, though. That's awesome. <laughs> that was where I saw, you know, uh, Queen Janeway speak uh, for the first time. It was nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah was her very... royal highness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I suppose we should interject for the f very small percentage of our listeners who might not recognize John Van Sitter's name. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> that he's a, a VP at CBS and uh, kind of, you know, oversees the Star Trek brand. And so he's got his hands in all of this stuff that's uh, going on with Star Trek lately. He's a great holder of the canon. Um, yes. Anytime I have to change something or add something or suggest something and I don't want to anger the canon gods him and Kirsten Beyer get phone calls from me. <laughs> if I say this, would you yes. get mad at me? <laughs> our working relationship. <laughs> this was mentioned a little bit earlier, but 
I'd like to go back and get a little bit more detail about how you got into doing the science consulting. So you get all your degrees, you come back to the States. How did you get your first consultant gig? Yeah, um, it was really through the convention circuit. Weirdly enough, I kind of worked backwards in that aspect because I started going to Dragon Con when I was a graduate student. I would come back to the States and kind of have a reunion with my friends from college. We would meet at Dragon Con every year, which is in Atlanta around Labor Day week on Labor Day weekend. Um, and I love, I can't say enough amazing things about Dragon Con. I think that was probably the hardest weekend for me in 2020 was when it would have been Dragon Con because I've got so many fond memories of that convention. Um, but one of the things Dragon Con does is it has these tracks that are very specific to various topics, um, not just fandoms. They do have a Trek track of which Garrett Wong is one of the organizers. Um, they also have fantasy literature track, costuming track, you know, American comics track, like military science fiction. And they also have a space track and a science track. And the space track is very professional science. Like it is not necessarily fandom pop culture touching. Mm -hmm. They just bring in and program a, an entire weekend of professional astronomers to come in and talk about their research for pretty much 24 hours a day for four days straight. It's really impressive. So I've gone to Dragon Con once. I was doing my PhD in gravitational waves. They hadn't been detected yet, but there were people interested in that. And so I offered to give a talk the following year. So I was brought on as a, a they call an attending professional the next year to Dragon Con. And then me being me kind of like going to all these other ones and they had video game track and track track. And so I started volunteering ideas for these other talks in these tracks that I was that I did want to do a cross pop culture talk in. And the video game track loved it. We did a science of mass effect uh, talk with myself in a now friend at the time. That's how we met. He's a professor at Duke. Um, but we uh, but it was hugely popular. And as at the same time, I'm transitioning out of academia. So I'm going through this whole crisis about missing out on teaching, not being able to be in front of people, to be like an inspiration to go into science. Um, and so I found kind of my home at these conventions teaching science with science fiction. And I started taking these talks all over the country. By this time, I'd moved back to the States. And but at the convention, the convention circuit is really weird. Once you get into it and you're going to like four or five of them over the summer that are all the really big ones, you see the same people constantly. <laughs> and and I was starting to see the same actors and creators and artists. And, uh, you know, we would exchange contact info. And like through them, I was starting to meet other people who were in the science fiction business. And so I started picking up a few science consulting jobs along the way, like just the odd sort of novelist that was coming up or someone who had an idea for a project. And then uh, at the, a whole bunch of other stuff was going on, but eventually I found myself in Los Angeles. And that's where all these friends that I had made at these conventions all live in Los Angeles. So they were like, oh, you're here now. Let's hang out. <laughs> and we exchanged contact info. We started hanging out. Um, and then I started meeting all of their friends working in the sci-fi realm. And it just kind of exploded from that point. And 
really the tricky thing is it's hard to sell yourself as a science consultant to science fiction writers because so many sci-fi writers have really bad experiences with science consultants that a lot of scientists don't understand the art and the storytelling behind it. Mm -hmm. And they just come in and they're like, nope, doesn't work that way. Nope, can't do that. Nope, doesn't make sense. <laughs> and that's a lot of negativity that you don't want in your creative process. <laughs> so yeah. for me, it took a few years to kind of build up that trust to, you know, building up the trust with people who are sort of at that staff writing level who then recommend me to their friends, who then recommend me to their friends. And then that network and that trust starts to build over time. And I was lucky enough to kind of have that happen through Star Trek Discovery. And then with Star Trek Discovery, it was going really well. And so we had the idea to expand my role to be one for the entire franchise. And um, however much shows wanted to use me or not, but mm -hmm. that I was just available as a resource to any of the shows. So just being under a blanket Star Trek production house, this is our science person. Call her if you have a question. Um, and it's been great. And again, it's almost starting from scratch for a lot of the shows. If they don't know me, if there's no connection to me, they're really hesitant to call a scientist who's going to make them feel sad. <laughs> but that trust slowly grows. And it's really credit to these other showrunners who do vouch for me and people like John Van Sitters who just say, no, give her a call. It'll be okay. <laughs> and then that starts to grow. And, and I've built some really great relationships out of that. I'm very grateful for. Can you tell us anything about the, uh, the process of your consulting on Star Trek that won't end with John Van Sitters and Kirsten sending section 31 after you? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, good question. So <laughs> It really depends, like I said, on the show and what kind of process that they are using at the time. Um, typically, though, let's say I'm in a good place with whatever show it is. They have an idea for an episode arc or like a season-wide arc that they want to run past me. They want to build some science backbone into. And so that's when I get a call. Then it, I'll be involved in the writer's room. So uh where they're kind of breaking the idea and they're bouncing ideas around and, and I'm just there to help answer questions and give some science ideas to them. And uh, that's kind of like an ideal process is being there at the beginning where we're able to build it together with the science. Sometimes it ends up like, okay, we wrote this whole story and now we're in trouble because we need science <laughs> and we don't think there's any science here. Um, but overall, I mean, most of my day-to-day, -day, which now is pretty full-time, is reading scripts. Um, so I'll be on all the distributions for the shows and I get scripts coming in and it's a lot. It's a lot. You better like reading. <laughs> And my partner was saying, he was like, man, it sounds like an awesome job, but I see you read like 200 pages a day of scripts. And it's... Well, and I was going to ask, do you read every, you know, as they go through the various, you know, the goldenrod, the tan, the salmon? the you know... Yeah, I mean, thankfully, revisions are marked, so I can kind of just skip yeah. to whatever ones are changing. But yeah, I mean, there's scripts that I will have read at least the revisions two dozen times, you know, yeah. and, and part of the skill where I think I still have to grow is not just looking at the line itself, but if I'm coming into a script cold, really seeing what's not there, I think that's probably the hardest part is to not edit what they have given me, 
but to try to see what might be missing in the background. That's a little bit of a subtlety. That's, that's something that I'm not quite there yet personally. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's, you're also balancing there's science and there's Star Trek science. Yeah. Yes. And, and they overlap, but then there are these big things that are outside. Yeah. And I was, uh, I'd say probably the, most stress that I've had to deal with that was so far was um, for discovery season three, which required to come up with a lot of science for dilithium. And I'm pretty proud of what I came up with. (laughs) And I think it's solid and it's past muster of not just the canon people of Star Trek, but like the fan canon people as well who are like, yep, nope, checks out, no flaws, no contradictory. (laughs) Okay. All right. We're good. We're good. Um, Yeah. It's, you know, and and sometimes too, the fun thing is, is that once I get to the relationship with a lot of writers, particularly like the staff writers who will send drafts where they know I'm going to be looking at it, they will just put in nonsense. And then they're like, that ah, she'll fix it. <laughs> it's fun. You know, but I'm I'm very grateful and it is fun. I mean, it is fun. And again, my partner, he gives me a hard time, but he's like, yeah, you were not allowed to complain. <laughs> he's like, you literally have like 15 unread Star Trek scripts in your inbox. Like, you need to work on that. <laughs> that was definitely me when my dad was reading all the new scripts, for, especially like for the first season of Disco. <laughs> And he knew everything, and I was like, "Oh." (laughs) Because I was copy editing the David Mack's first Discovery novel before the Mm. show was on the air, I was on the distribution list so I could get some familiarity with the characters to inform my editing of the novel, and I had to really develop a poker face. Yeah. You've never had a poker face in my whole life. And then the, the year or whatever that you were reading those scripts, especially like before we knew anything about the show. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, I love that. It's, you know, I was the funny story I have about that is I was at home working and I'm also subsequently or at the same time watching Star Trek. And I'm reading Star Trek and my partner's youngest kid comes in and she's like, I, she's like, you're watching Star Trek, you're reading Star Trek, you're drinking out of Star Trek because I had a mug, you're wearing Star Trek, you have Star Trek socks. She's like, Aaron, she's eight at the time. I think there's too much Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> she would Does, say no the same thing. thing to me. Because no such thing. I'm often, you know, when I when I'm copy editing Star Trek or writing Star Trek, I'm usually listening to Star Trek soundtracks. Yep. And often wearing a Star Trek shirt <laughs> yeah. and drinking out of, you know, drinking out of a Star Trek mug. Yep. 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 <laughs> it happens. We just fully and, immerse ourselves. Yeah. And then, well, and actually I tweeted about this just today because I'm copy editing a Star Trek novel and there was something that I wanted to double check. So I had to go and watch a little scene from uh, TOS to to double check a line of dialogue I wanted to uh, confirm. And so, yeah. And then you end up just leaving the whole thing on in the background while you keep working. And... The, no, <laughs> I, I, I turn it off and it's more willpower than I ever would have imagined I could have that I'm able to just go and watch the scene I need and then turn it off. <laughs> I, I don't awesome. just end up watching the whole episode, which 
is always so tempting. Yeah, it happens. I because I still you know watch Star Trek just casually as a fan. I did start just having a notebook with me to make those random notes, so I'm not constantly going back and checking things. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Is there anything that you got into like over quarantine? Oh, and COVID. And- yeah. Um. The Twitch community has been awesome. Um, I got, uh, so I did have a Twitch channel from a few years ago where I started doing educational content and then I started focusing on Star Trek and, and that kind of died a little bit. But then when quarantine started, I started it up again and I decided to just replay Mass Effect because I knew how to do it and I wasn't afraid to play that in front of strangers. <laughs> and then the whole community is still awesome and I got bullied into playing Star Trek online. <laughs> <laughs> I don't regret. It's still really good. And it, that's been a lot of fun. So I have a Twitch channel. It's at Dr. Aaron Mack. Um, in fact, I just finished a watch party. We watched a Trouble with Tribbles episode right before this. <laughs> so it is really fun. That's That's been great to kind of share that community with people. Um, it has been a little hard at times because I feel like 2020 was my professional year of taking off with the Star Trek like as an official person I think it was the end of December 2019 where we formally announced my involvement and uh, so I didn't get to go to any of the premiere parties I didn't you know so that was like a little bit of a bummer but um, for me quarantine wise other than you know my twitch stuff i just i love sitcoms and i've just have caught up with all these ones people are recommending we've got schitt's creek watched all of that i've watched it like four times in a row now i finally watched <laughs> what we do in the shadows love every second oh of gosh. that oh mm-hmm. my god that's <laughs> so good <laughs> and again i've watched that twice um there's been, oh, I watched all of Kim's Convenience. That was another great find. All of these just really wholesome, kind sitcoms that were just fabulous. Um, also, Ted Lasso was a late find when people weren't, like, we're talking about it nonstop. I finally mm-hmm. subscribed to Apple, and we watched that within 12 hours because it was that good. So, yeah, I'm all about the happy, calming place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I feel like I've, like, always had a soft spot for sitcoms, but I feel like since, you know, last year, a year ago, I feel like I've been watching a lot more of, like, <laughs> I almost started Kim's Convenience the other day, and then it, I got distracted and didn't, but it's, like, on my Netflix watch list, so I'll have to get to it, but yeah, I've been watching, like, Dairy Girls, Shit's oh, Creek, just, Dairy like, Girls, that was yeah. another one, yeah, <laughs> I know, oh, the God. best. Well, enjoy Kim's Convenience, it's fabulous. <laughs> oh, I'll have to start it. oh i have one last star trek question here before we go uh what star trek technology do you most wish could work in the real world regardless of whether it could really work or not yeah yeah (laughs) um i mean i'd probably say part of me wants to say transporters but at the same time like i think if we had warp drive it's like i can deal with shuttle travel <laughs> as long mm-hmm. as we have warp drive i can take a shuttle to the surface i've got the budget for it <laughs> this is in the 1960s um so i would probably say warp drive not just because of my personal attachment to it through general relativity but just the fact that we could travel 
to other star systems in not unreasonable times, I think that would be amazing. Got to get off this stupid planet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it has been so much fun talking with you. And I hope we all get to meet in person at a convention someday. Just when conventions happen again, when it's all safe and happy, I can't wait to to meet everyone and celebrate together and enjoy Star Trek in person once again. Well, I hope that we get to see you at uh, at Shore Leave in 2022. Yes, yeah. fingers crossed. You're an awesome. <laughs> We'll share some Akintosh and Ella. <laughs> oh, I, it would be my absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah, we've got Janeway things to discuss. We've got Akintosh and to drink. <laughs> Which, oh my God, the last time we were at Shore Leave um, is I met Ethan Peck and he was like, oh, they gave me this extra glass of whiskey. Like, do you want it? And I was like, yes. And it was, um, yeah, it was an Irish whiskey. It was Tullamore Dew. So that's usually what I have in the house now, but... Yeah, I'm now that we've been talking about it, I want to go buy some Akintoshin. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you again for having me, though. This was super fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for more geeky fun. Until then, check out our website, generationsgeek.com, for blog posts or to stream any of our episodes. And consider dropping something in our tip jar on Ko-Fi or Coffee or however it's pronounced please leave a review for us wherever you can tell your friends tell your friendly neighborhood drag queens and you can also follow us on twitter instagram and facebook (laughs) thanks for listening and come back come back next time no geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast Shiny.